70 years with KBS World Radio, 70 years of global Korea. Throughout the year, we celebrate the 70th anniversary of KBS World Radio with the voices of our listeners from all over the world. Hello, greetings from Hanin Saleh from Jeddah, Saudi Arabia. Happy 70th birthday, KBS World Radio. I wish the channel the best of luck in all its future endeavors. To tell you a little bit about myself, I fell in love with Korean culture as I started to tune in to KBS channels when I was 13 years old. You helped me understand Korea and the Korean culture better and I started to build a strong relationship with the country. Last year, I won an award from Yala K-pop, a K-pop contest hosted by KBS World Radio's Arabic service, and got to visit Korea for a performance. Guess who I got to meet there? The Arabic service staff members. They were such wonderful people and gave me the warmest welcome. I was so happy to meet them. They were the best out of all the people I met in Korea. Once again, happy birthday, KBS World Radio. Seventy years with KBS World Radio, seventy years of global Korea. KBS World Radio brings Korea to you wherever you are. It's Wednesday, the 8th of November, and welcome to Korea 24. I'm your host, Won jang President Yoon Sung-yeol held a summit with the Italian President Sergio Mattarella in Seoul, where they agreed to cooperate in various sectors, including hydrogen, AI and space. We'll have more details in news briefing shortly. For our in-depth today, we'll be talking to an expert who's examined the case for South Korea's nuclear armament by looking at India's experience of going nuclear. And coming up for Korea Book Club, we discuss a book by the International Booker Prize shortlisted author Chan myung about a dysfunctional modern Korean family. We have all that and more on today's Korea 24. The Italian president, Sergio Mattarella, is in Seoul, and President Yoon Sung-yeol hosted a welcoming ceremony on the lawn of the presidential office in Yongsan, complete with honor guard and a 21-gun salute. After the ceremony, the two sat down for summit talks. Let's hear some of President Yoon's opening remarks, followed by President Mattarella. It is especially meaningful as President Mattarella is visiting ahead of the 140th anniversary of the establishment of bilateral diplomatic relations next year. I hope that South Korea will be able to continue strengthening future-oriented cooperation with Italy, which shares the universal values of freedom, human rights and the rule of law. Thank you, Mr. President, for your invitation. Italy and South Korea continue their efforts to collaborate for democracy and the free market economy, as well as our trade and international relations. 
I believe that we need collaboration beyond the economy into other areas, including culture. To discuss the meeting and our other headlines of the day, we have joining us in the studio today, KBS World Radio news anchor Tom McCarthy. Tom, hello. It's good to have you back. Hi, Jungle. I'm glad to be back. So the Italian president, Sergio Mattarella, arrived in Seoul yesterday for a three-day state visit at the invitation of Yun, with a summit held today to discuss various avenues of cooperation. So what did they talk about? Well, in the joint news conference after the summit, Yoon and Mattarella said they agreed to cooperate in the high-tech industries of hydrogen, artificial intelligence, and space. They also further pledged to continue close collaboration on North Korea issues, including denuclearization and human rights, as well as on other international concerns. Yes, and after seeing off the Italian president, Yun himself will soon be setting off on a diplomatic trip himself, according to announcement by his office. Uh, so where is he heading? The presidential office said today that Yoon will travel to San Francisco for the Asia-Pacific Economic Cooperation Summit from next Wednesday to Friday, accompanied by First Lady Kim Gun-hee. In addition to attending the summit to emphasize the country's contribution to the clean energy transition and overcoming the climate crisis, he is also expected to hold one-on-one summits with world leaders on the sidelines. With Chinese President Xi Jinping set to attend, there is speculation about a possible Seoul-Beijing summit. Yes, we'll have updates on that next week. Let's turn now to some domestic headlines. A new nominee for Supreme Court Chief Justice has finally been named by President Yun. So what can you tell us about him? Uh, the new nominee is Jo Hee Dae, who is actually a former justice of the top court, who served from 2014 to 2020. He served as a judge in various jurisdictions for 27 years before he became a professor at Sungkyunkwan University. And what did the top office have to say about their new pick? Presidential Chief of Staff Kim Dae-gi said that Jo has led the fight to protect the rights of the socially underprivileged as well as minorities, and said that since retiring from the judiciary, Jo has exclusively concentrated on research and nurturing students as a professor. Now, all that standing between him and the top judgeship in the country is confirmation by the National Assembly, right? Yes, but as you might recall, the last nominee, Lee Gyun Yong, was actually rejected by the opposition-dominated parliament for the first denial in 35 years, so Joe's appointment is not guaranteed yet. Yes, we'll see if the process is any smoother for Cho in the coming weeks. Let's talk about an issue that's been uh, developing over the last few weeks. Public anxiety is spiking with the outbred, outbreak of bedbug infestations in the nation. So what's happening here? Reports of bedbug sightings and bites have been pouring in from every region in the country since October 13th, when fully grown specimens as well as larvae were found in a sauna in Incheon. Six days later, a private university in Daegu had to fumigate its dorms after a suspected case was reported by a student. Yes, we touched upon this on our career trending segment as recently as last Friday. Uh, So what's happened since? Since then, the central government is working with local governments in an attempt to prevent a catastrophic prevalence of the infections. Inspections and fumigation efforts are underway at high-risk businesses, while some municipalities are circulating informational pamphlets and setting up call centers to report suspected sightings. Also, a countermeasures headquarters comprising 10 related ministries at the federal level has requested that local governments report suspected and confirmed infestations so that they can track them on a centralized system. Yes, this is, of course, a major concern for the country, right? 
Yeah, the insects were believed to have been eradicated in the 1960s after an extermination campaign, along with the introduction of the now banned DDT as an insecticide in the following decade. While the blood-sucking insects do not transmit infectious diseases, their bites can cause severe itching and dermatological issues, and they spread explosively and can be difficult to eradicate, so people are rightly concerned. Indeed. Uh, let's continue uh, on and turn our attentions back to international relations. South Korea was recently removed from the U.S.'s list of countries whose currency policies merited monitoring. So what changed to improve its whole's standing in Washington's eyes? Well, according to the U.S. Treasury's semi-annual report on the foreign exchange policies of its largest trade partners, South Korea is now no longer in violation of two out of three criteria. And what are those criteria? They are basically thresholds, the first being a trade surplus with the U.S. in excess of $15 billion. The second is a material current account surplus of at least 3% of the country's GDP. And the third, persistent net foreign currency purchases amounting to at least 2% of the GDP. And South Korea previously exceeded two, but now doesn't. Yeah, the country exceeded the current account threshold as well as the trade surplus. It was actually compliant as of the June 2023 report, but remained on the monitoring list at least until the next report as is standard. Uh, It is now only in excess of the trade surplus. Elsewhere in international relations, the Group of Seven Foreign Ministers meeting was held today in Tokyo. The top diplomats released a statement condemning North Korea for multiple offences. So what did they have to say? So the overview of the Indo-Pacific session included a rebuke of North Korea's intensified nuclear and missile activities, repeated ballistic missile launches, and its arms transfer to Russia. The statement pointed out that all the activities directly violate UN Security Council resolutions. They also called for a resolution to the issue of Japanese abductees in North Korea and added a call for direct dialogue with China to work together on global challenges and areas of common interest. One of the attendees at the G7 meeting, of course, was U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken, whose trip to Tokyo is followed by a visit to Seoul through Thursday. So what's on his itinerary? In his first visit since the Yoon suk yeol administration took office, he is set to meet with Seoul's foreign minister, Pak Jin, to discuss a range of issues, including North Korea's military cooperation with Russia and the general global security situation. He is also set to meet with President Yoon, but specific details have not yet been released. The main theme of the trip is the continued development of the South Korea-U.S. alliance, which celebrated its 70th anniversary this year. That's where we're going to wrap it up for our news briefing. Tom, thank you for bringing us those headlines. Thank you so much. While multinational efforts for the denuclearization of North Korea continues to show little progress, the public voice in favour of South Korea developing its own nuclear program has remained high. Some who are on the side of the debate argue that in order to establish a proper and apparently more autonomous national security, South Korea's nuclear armament is necessary. On the other hand, the opposing voice is concerned with possible repercussions, such as the escalation of tension in and around the Korean Peninsula, the economic costs which would follow, and the geopolitical consequences which may as well. For today's in-depth news analysis, we've invited an expert to to ask his take on the matter, including how India's nuclear programme could be a significant case study. Joining us on the line today is Dr Jagannath, 
Panda, head of the Stockholm Centre for South Asian and Indo-Pacific Affairs. He joins us on the line now, Dr. Panda. Hello and thank you for your time. Hello, good afternoon, good evening. How are you doing? I'm good, thank you. Thank you for sharing your time with us today. Uh, let's begin with taking a closer look at the current stalemate situation in regards to the negotiations for North Korea's uh, denuclearization. How do you assess this situation? I think uh, uh, the nuclear effort that North Korea has pursued over the years, particularly over the last one decade, is definitely worrisome. And this has severely affected the security trends in the Northeast Asia and also in East Asia. So therefore, it is important to have a holistic view about North Korean nuclear program. It has been quite bluntly been supported by China. It has been quite, uh, you know, abruptly and bluntly been supported by Russia. And also there has been a nuclear nexus between North Korea, China and Russia for a long time, which is uh, really affecting the regional security calculus uh, in East Asia and Northeast Asia. And therefore, we need to have a nuclear deterrence in East Asia, particularly having a kind of uh, nuclear equilibrium strategy. And therefore, it is important for South Korea to think about nuclear power. Mm. So, yes, it's amid the situation uh, that today's topic comes in. The debate on whether South Korea should also become a nuclear state. You recently wrote an article titled South Korea as a Nuclear State, Trade-Offs and Choices. And in the article, you introduced a brief history of India's nuclear program and what South Korea can learn from it, especially the economic and geopolitical costs that India had to pay. So first... Can we talk about the economic costs? Because we are talking costs beyond simply the cost of developing the nuclear weapons. What economic costs were there for India? Well, I think uh, first we should talk a little bit about uh, South Korea's nuclear ambition. And I think this is a very sensitive topic uh, because, uh, uh, you know, any power, a a top-ranked economy going for a nuclear power will have economic, strategic and as well as diplomatic consequences. Uh, this is what India has faced. So therefore, uh, South Korea might really face each other. South Korea decides to go for a nuclear. So it is important to draw the lessons. When it comes to India's nuclear program, if we uh, revisit the uh, you know, two decades, two and a half decades back when India went for the nuclear test in Pokhran, there was severe economic sanctions on India. Uh, you know, all the multilateral institutions, financial institutions, global financial institutions, they actually impose sanctions, including some of the top economy in the world who are who used to be India's top trading powers. They also put the sanctions. So therefore, a, a rising economy like India, that time, two and a half year, decades back, faced severe economic sanctions, not only on, you know, in terms of trade contacts, but also in terms of getting donations and aid. But that's not really entirely the case with South Korea today. I think uh, uh, South Korea is a top-ranked, GDP-ranked economy. And uh, South Korea's economy is not really a developing economy, what Indian economy used to be. So the economic sanction on South Korea might have a different consequences. Um, but what we must also understand, that India was a, a agrarian, agricultural-based society when India went for the nuclear test two and a half decades back. But that's not really the case for South Korea. South Korea is a trading economy. So any sort of you know, economic sanction on South Korea will have severe implications on South Korean economy. So therefore, South Korea should be mindful about economic sanctions and should think about 
you know, remedies and uh, alternative scenarios, how to tackle the economic sanctions. Of course, the world will think twice before, you know, imposing sanctions on South Korea because it's a top-ranked economy and imposing sanctions on South Korea will also be affect, you know, the regional economies and the other economies will be equally affected. So, therefore, any countries, any financial institutions globally imposing sanctions on South Korea, they will think twice. But again, South Korea also is a top trading partner of the global, global economy. So, therefore, economic sanctions might have huge consequences for South South Korea's economy, if not in the long term, but also, but 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 definitely in the shorter term. Right. So we can be certain then that if South Korea were to go nuclear, e- economic sanctions would follow. Yes, definitely. I think uh, economic sanctions will definitely be there, and I think uh, uh, South Korea becoming, uh, you know, being a kind of alliance partner of the U.S. Uh, and being a kind of uh, you know, partner of the U.S. Security umbrella in the North Asia, definitely I think uh, uh, the American um, are not really going to take it easy. They would like South Korea not to go for nuclear. So therefore, South Korea deciding to go for nuclear will definitely have its own consequences, particularly from its top security alliance and economic partner like, like, like U.S. And while saying that, China would also take a severe uh, you know, sanctions on, on South Korea, given the strong trading partnership between China and South Korea, despite of the North Korea problem and despite of so many other issues, I think uh, the Chinese sanctions might also affect South Korean economy. So therefore, in the shorter term, South Korea is bound to face some, some difficulties but, and economic sanctions are going to be there uh, as a consequence uh, if South Korea decides to go for nuclear. Right, so South Korea will be facing the prospects of sanctions from both the US and China, potentially. That leads us next to the wider geopolitical costs. Uh, What sort of geopolitical costs do you envision uh, for South Korea? Uh, What lessons were there from India's nuclear programme? Where did India's nuclear programme leave the nation on the world stage? Well, if we see, I think, uh, you know, historically... If we take all the nuclear powers and their neighbor strategy and their neighborhood strategy, I think nuclear deterrence is definitely the most effective uh, deterrence strategy that uh, many countries have. So therefore, South Korea going for nuclear will have an effective nuclear deterrence strategy against North Korea, if not against China. Um, because uh, South Korea's most of the threat comes from North Korea. So therefore, South Korea going for nuclear, definitely going to help it in terms of nuclear deterrence strategy. But this is not definitely going to be out of the diplomatic cost or political cost or geopolitical cost. And I think uh, we have seen that if we take the lessons from India um, and Pakistan, when they went for nuclear, India's problem with Pakistan has not really you know, solved. India has not been resolving the issues with Pakistan. Of course, uh, the nuclear strategy has maintained uh, a kind of helped uh, India to maintain some kind of psychological edge over Pakistan. But while saying that, definitely the classical problems, the boundary dispute, to you know the 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 the, the problem between India and Pakistan when it comes comes to Jammu and Kashmir, when it comes to terrorism issue, when it comes to China, has not really been sought. So nuclear deterrence strategy will have its own limitations. So therefore, I'm not sure if South Korea going for a nuclear power um, and obtain nuclear power is going to resolve most of the problems in the Northeast Asia or in the East Asia, particularly concerning North Korea. So therefore, 
um, South Korea can have some nuclear deterrent strategy, a psychological age over North Korea, uh, because South Korea is a developed economy, it is an alliance partner of the U.S., but that is not definitely going to resolve most of the problems South Korea today facing from North Korea. So therefore, North Korea might be really provocative again, and North Korea might be aggressive. And also, what we might see, uh, if South Korea decides to go for a nuclear nuclear test and uh, become a nuclear power, then there might be a much more uh, militaristic alliance-building exercises might happen between North Korea, China, and Russia, because we are seeing a kind of authoritarian axis in Northeast Asia, particularly after the Ukraine war. So therefore, uh, this will definitely help North Korea not only to, you know, mitigate some of the sanctions, but also internationally, by, uh, you know, uh, advocate a position by saying that, uh, look here, um, North Korea really went for the nuclear, looking at its own security, and today South Korea has uh, went for the nuclear. So therefore, it will allow North Korea to have a better space internationally and to bargain hard internationally to, you know, remove some of the sanctions. So there are geopolitical costs involved in it, in it, and therefore South Korea should be mindful about some of the geopolitical calculus uh, that might, uh, you know, uh, emerge from uh, going for a nuclear test. Right, so you're saying while it may be effective as a deterrent, uh, South Korea going nuclear, it essentially doesn't resolve uh, the conflict, the greater issues surrounding uh, the conflict, uh, and you're taking lessons from the India-Pakistan situation, Uh, you're saying, and in fact, it could push North Korea closer to its allies, such as China and Russia. But uh, Korean... Uh, South Korean uh, proponents of the nuclear option will still say that right now Korea, South Korea needs more of a d- deterrent and therefore um, it will look towards that. Uh, you have definitely said that it would be ineffective as a deterrent. Yes, definitely there will be an effective deterrent strategy, nuclear deterrent strategy, but then uh, it will have its geopolitical consequences. We have seen that India Pakistan has not really been resolving their bilateral issues. In fact, the issues have been, become complicated. In fact, after India has gone for nuclear, um, uh, Pakistan has become much more dependent and uh, emerged as a closer ally to China. So the same might happen to North Korea. North Korea might emerge as the strongest ever allies, not only with China, but also for, with, with Russia. So therefore, there might be geopolitical uh, you know, uh, implications for South Korea, which South Korea should be mindful about. So this situation, uh, South Korea's potential nuclearization would, I'm guessing, affect other uh, countries as well. For example, Japan's aspiration for their own nuclear armament, it could spread uh, to that sort of situation as well, I'm guessing. Oh, yes, definitely. I think uh, uh, South Korea going for nuclear will be a kind of a boost for many other countries to follow the same, uh, including Japan. Uh, We know for a fact that the similar kind of issues the similar kind of debates going on in Japan. And most definitely in Japan, the nuclear issue is an emotional issue. Therefore, Japan has fought hard domestically, uh, you know, uh, just to curb the temptation not going for nuclear for, for, for a very long time. But we know for a fact that as a, nuclear, as, as, as a military alliance partner of the U.S., uh, Japan is considering uh, to have a nuclear power option for a very long time. In fact, there is a a strong military modernization process, uh, you know, in terms of nuclear research. A lot of advancement is going on in terms of, uh, you know, making the Japanese military and army 
much more um, information centric and therefore uh, new uh, making uh, uh, the japanese uh, japan uh, as a nuclear power is definitely one of the key debates within the dpp within within the ldp and also within the japanese strategic communities so therefore japan might also consider the option of becoming nuclear and also we would not be surprised if many other countries in southeast asia might also consider to become a nuclear power so therefore um south korea becoming a nuclear power or going for a nuclear test definitely will uh, create a regional atmosphere which might uh, you know we might see a kind of a, a regional tensions emerging uh, on the one hand and on the other hand uh, many countries might uh, you know follow the suit of uh, pursuing a nuclear uh, ambition strategy Okay, so it certainly seems that there are a lot of factors to consider, a lot of consequences to consider. But then what are the alternatives then? If South Korea's nuclear armament cannot be a solution to the problem, uh, what do you think Seoul and Washington can do? I think uh, for, for, for now, the most effective strategy for this South Korea is, uh, you know, to stay prepared for a nuclear test. It's just about, you know, testing the uh, the, the atom bomb so therefore i think south korea is a competent military power uh, and it does not need to go for a test per se uh, it has all the competent technologies to go nuclear so i, I think it it's it, it can just stay ready and if the regional tensions uh, including north korea and china uh, you know um, reduces the uh, regional uh, peace and stability then south korea might consider going for a nuclear test but at this moment i don't think the case and the situation is appropriate for south korea to go for nuclear at the same time uh, you know internationally i think um, the international community must think about uh, a complete ban of the nuclear test technologies and i think that is for the peace and stability but then we know that uh, nuclear issue is a superpower politics issue and i don't think within the superpowers particularly the permanent five countries us uh, china russia uh, france and uh, uk there is no consensus about how to start the european nuclear you know from, from many countries to go for nuclear and therefore we might not be able to stop south korea and japan going for nuclear test well, it's been very interesting to get your perspective today, Dr. Panda. The comparison with India, I think, certainly gives us a lot of food for thought. Uh, but we'll have to leave it there. We've been talking to Dr. Jagannath Panda from Stockholm Center for South Asian and Indo-Pacific Affairs. Thank you once again for your time today. Thank you. My pleasure. Welcome to the Korea 24 Stock and Forex Update. The benchmark Korea Composite Stock Price Index shed 22.34 points, or 0.91% on Wednesday, to close the day at 2,421.62. The tech-heavy Kosdaq also fell, losing 13.35 points, or 1.62%, to close at 811.02. On the foreign exchange, the local currency shed 2.71 against the U.S. dollar, to close the day at 1,310.61. You can check Korean stock and forex closings at world.kbs.co.kr. Next up, it's Korea Trending, our daily segments where we take a look at some other news stories that have been trending online. And for that, we have joining us in the studio now, Daniel Che, our news editor. Daniel, hello. It's good to see you. Hello. It's good to see you again, jang Okay, so what do you have for us first today? 
On Monday, the Changwon District Court issued a pretrial detention warrant for a man who beat up a female convenience store clerk in Jinju, South Gyeongsang Province. Random violent acts, including some that result in the loss of lives, have been seen on the news in Korea as of late. So this is a very disturbing development. Yes, this story has sadly been making headlines both at home and abroad over the past few days, not just for the attack, but for the reason why. Right, the man in his 20s began punching and kicking the clerk at around 12, 10 a.m. last Saturday. He claims he is part of a so-called anti-feminist group and the women with short hair like the clerk are sure to be feminists and that they must be beaten up. A customer, a man in his 50s at the store during that time, tried to stop the attacker and got hit several times in the process as well, sustaining facial fractures, including a broken nose. The clerk injured her arm and ear, and the attacker reportedly used chairs and also tried to bite the two people. When police questioned the attacker, he said he doesn't remember what happened clearly. Officers who apprehended the man said he was intoxicated during the time of the attack. Right, so these extreme anti-feminist groups believe feminism as meaning hating men. And so there is hostility towards people they perceive to be feminist. And then in Korea, women with short hair has become associated with feminism. So that's why this attacker targeted this clerk, if we are to follow his twisted logic. However, after this shocking incident, people began a campaign via social media to show support for the victim. Yes, the so-called shortcut challenge took off. Women with short haircuts posting pictures to show support and stand in solidarity with victims of violent acts by those that claim to be anti-feminists. Type the word shortcut and one can easily find posts related to the movement. There's already more than 10,000 and counting. They want to let the world know they can choose to have this hairstyle and that they should not live in fear of becoming victims for having it. Yes, it's an awful situation and essentially a a hate crime. It has exposed the risk that women fear that they're under for even suggesting that they might be a feminist. Uh, As we said, he is now under pre-trial detention, the attacker, so we'll see how this trial proceeds. Let's continue on to our second story now. What do you have for us? The Han River parks in Seoul are the perfect place to go for a stroll or for a nice bike ride. Uh, But cyclists riding at high speeds can also be seen there and it can lead to accidents. So Seoul City announced Tuesday plans to improve bike paths along the rivers to prevent such accidents. Right, the issue often stems from the fact that cyclists and pedestrians either share paths or they cross over at various points, and this is leading to accidents. So Seoul City is looking to address the situation then, and I understand the plan is quite substantial as well, with objectives and goals set to be accomplished over a span of two years. Yes, various efforts will be made through 2025. First up, AI will be used to upgrade CCTV cameras for to monitor speeding, and more smart systems will be installed to provide guidelines and announcements. The goal is to expand the service to nine more areas, including Duksam, Ichon, and Mangwon, to have them installed in 40 spots. The number of cameras installed around bike paths will be increased from the current 127 to 177. Around 170 signs and banners will be set up in 11 Han River parks to ensure people are reminded of the dangers of speeding. The bike paths will be made wider from the current 3 meters to 4 Right, great news for bikers who are concerned about reckless speeding riders. But what about pedestrian safety? Well, pedestrian paths will be made wider as well from the current 2 metres to 3. Pedestrian safety zones will be designated within 100 metres of bike paths and clear and visible signs will be set up to better inform bikers and pedestrians, including signs painted on the path or projected from above. Bigger speed bumps will also be installed near pedestrian crossings and a speed limit of 20 kilometers per hour will be enforced in some areas to ensure 
pedestrian safety. Discussions will be held by relevant authorities to enforce new traffic laws that enforce such speed limits. I see. Hopefully this will encourage safer cycling and lead to less accidents. Let's continue on to our last story. What else has been trending today? Well, ahead of the state visit to the UK by President Yoon Sung-yeol and the First Lady later this month, King Charles III will visit London's New Malden on Wednesday local time to spend time with the area's Korean community. Right, so this story really hits home for me, literally, because New Malden used to be my home. In fact, my parents still live there. Uh, for those who don't know, New Malden is an area uh, just on the outskirts of London where the largest community of Koreans in Europe live. Right, everyone from that area who happens to be working in the English broadcasting in Korea happens to know each other quite well, I understand. <laughs> yes, there are a lot of connections, certainly, yes. Right, around 10,000 Koreans live there, up to 20,000 more live in the surrounding areas. The New Malden and wider Kingston areas have a number of prominent Korean businesses and community amenities, including Korean language churches and nurseries, as well as restaurants and shops. In January 2023, the London borough became the first place in Europe to declare November 22nd as Kimchi Day. Yes, so we talked about that on the show back in January, of course. So the king is set to visit soon then. I understand that it's the first such visit by a royal family member. So what kind of activities will the king get to take part in? Yes, a host of activities are planned. He will meet with key figures, including youth leaders of New Malden. Uh, King Charles will also visit stalls that showcase select Korean dishes, namely cakes and the shaved ice dessert bingsu. At New Malden Methodist Church, the king will meet Korea's ambassador to the UK, Yoon Yeo-chul, as well as local council representatives, including the mayor of the Royal Borough of Kingston. There will be meetings with representatives from various groups based in the area, including the Korean Residence Society, the Korean Restaurant and Supermarket markets association and local faith leaders as well. Uh, King Charles will vi- will view an exhibition on the 140th anniversary of bilateral diplomatic ties organized by the Korean British Cultural Exchange and Kingston Museum. Well, I know from my family that this is literally the talk of the town, understandably. We certainly hope the king has a great time in New Malden and it's a, a wonderful occasion for the local Korean community. I'm just sorry I can't be there myself, of course. OK, that's what we're going to wrap it up for today's uh, Korea Trending. Thank you for bringing us those stories, Daniel, and we'll see you next time. Thank you so much for having me. to our Wednesday corner, Korea Book Club. Here we delve into the world of Korean literature through works available in translation and beyond. Joining us now in the studio is our literary critic, Barry Welsh. Barry, hello. It's great to see you again. Yes, hello. So what do you have from... What do you have in store for us this week, Barry? So this week we're reviewing a novel called Modern Family by Chon Myung-gwan. It was originally published in Korea back in 2010 and then it was translated into English by Park Kyung-hee and published in English in 2015. The Korean title is Korong-hwa Kajok and Chon is, of course, a very highly acclaimed novelist and also an accomplished scriptwriter uh, who's left quite a significant mark on both Korean literature and cinema. Uh, his literary talents have earned several of the big uh, awards like the Munhak Dongni Novel Award and the Kusang Young Writer Award and so getting these awards uh, solidified his status as a, a prominent figure in contemporary Korean literature uh, his works have been translated into various languages including English and French, Chinese, Russian uh, and Vietnamese and so on 
And I think this uh, global success that John's had highlights the, the universal themes and uh, compelling narratives we often find in his writing. And among his most notable works in English is uh, Whale, which we reviewed uh, recently. It was a very high profile, uh, profile and, and successful uh, translation mm. uh, and a very good example of his uh, uh, storytelling ability. Uh, today's novel, Modern Family, also gained widespread recognition in Korean, but was unfairly and uh, just overlooked in its English. English translation, so hopefully more people will uh, find this novel after the success of Whale. It was also adapted into a movie under the name Boomerang Family, which you can find uh, on uh, uh, some streaming services. And uh, it's a very good example of, of Chon's ability to craft uh, engaging narratives that resonate with readers uh, and, I guess, uh, viewers alike in the film mm. adaptation. But uh, he, Chon has a, a very distinctive storytelling style often explores uh, complex human relationships uh, in his stories uh, and he has, has carved for himself quite a strong legacy uh, and he is thanks most recently I guess to the success of Whale a very celebrated figure at the moment in contemporary Korean uh, literature and culture Modern Family is a, a great example of his work it's a blackly comic drama about three adult siblings who return home to live with their elderly mother after their lives fall apart for different reasons it's a deeply enjoyable piece of social commentary and it's filled with engaging characters right so yes as you said we talked about whale recently and we talked about the work quite a lot this year because it was of course shortlisted for the international brooker prize mm-hmm. as well uh, but today's work modern family it is quite different whereas whale had quite fantastical elements in it i believe yeah. this is just mm-hmm. more of a straight regular family drama but i'm sure there are still elements of uh, chun's storytelling uh, ability that shines through yeah right. can you give us a brief overview of the plot and the characters the main characters of modern family yeah right so like you said it is it is very different in some senses from whale but they both have uh like his talent for creating very memorable uh characters like Mm. there's a huge range of characters in both books and in modern family uh we're uh, introduced to i guess the the central character is kim in mo and he's a 48 year old uh film director a failed uh film director really and he's uh sort of struggling with a mountain of debts uh, and a failing marriage and at the beginning you might think he's, he seems like a character from a, a Hong Sang-soo movie the sort of failed <laughs> movie director with a failed marriage sure but um his uh, sort of this desperate his, his desperate situation uh, he's in you know failed career failed marriage he has to sell everything that he owns his uh, second hand car his appliances all his books his beloved uh, video collection uh, and so he's left with nothing but his uh, old uh, mattress uh, in a, an empty room and so he's even sort of uh, half jokingly contemplating selling his uh, selling his body um, but uh, the prospects for this seem bleak for a balding uh, middle age man <laughs> and so anyway of no way out of this uh, this situation uh he receives a phone call from his elderly mother and this kind of becomes a lifeline for him so in an act of desperation he decides to swallow his pride and return to his childhood home uh, but as fate would have it his return home is not a solitary one his elder brother Han Mo who's known as Hammer due to his sort of imposing uh, physical presence he's been residing there since he was released from uh, prison 
and then uh, Inmo's return is followed by the surprise arrival of their younger sister Mi Yon who's uh, fleeing a failed uh, marriage too after having an affair and she's brought her teenage daughter Mim Kyung which adds another layer of uh, difficulty to this already very dysfunctional family dynamic <laughs> and so with this sort of uh, said at the beginning of summer they have this sort of long hot summer ahead of them they're stuck in this tiny apartment with hammers questionable uh, personal hygiene and, and tension seems like they're destined to sort of flare up and so this, you know, the old saying of blood is thicker than water is, is put to the test as they uh, grapple with their strained uh, family and sibling bonds. Right. That sets up the, the main characters then. Three yeah. adult siblings, one mother and one teenage daughter, all living together under one household ahead of a blistering summer. How did the characters then evolve throughout the story? Right, so that setup, it's a great uh, setup for mm. a story and obviously mirrors things that have happened in the real world with people having to move back home with, with parents when you know, they're struggling financially. Uh, and it's Inmo who does lead us through this story. So it's narrated in the first person by Inmo. And so we follow most of the events uh, mainly through his perspective. Uh, and so we see the other characters, his brother, his sister, his mother, initially uh, through through his eyes. So wh- how we see them is influenced by his perception of them. And so at the beginning, Hammer, H- Hanmo, he seems like this grotesque, you know, unpleasant uh, person. Uh, and we think, you know, he, he just, you know, he's a criminal, he's a crook. And so we sort of believe what Inmo thinks about him. But then as the story goes on, uh, you know, we see that... Uh, Hammer might actually be a bit of a different person and Inmo begins to reveal his own shortcomings and flaws and we sort of go through this process of re-evaluating our uh, judgments of these characters Mm. Uh, and these other characters you know the sister the brother uh, Inmo's quite hostile to them and he's jaded in the way he thinks about them and these characters eventually surprise us with their, their warmth and their humanity and their you know love for their brother and for one another. And we realise that these characters, they might have sacrificed themselves in their own education because Inmo had such high aspirations, right? He was dreaming of uh, being a, a film director and, you know, he still dreams of making another movie. And so they might have sacrificed their own lives just to help Inmo. And so anyway, as the story progresses, sort of more of the family secrets are unveiled, more information about their past emerges and uh, our perceptions of of, uh, our ungrateful narrator uh, and other characters undergo undergo a a radical uh, shift and and transformation. I see. So it's quite the journey that the uh, protagonist and the family go on then. Uh, But clearly we can already get a sense, I think, of the unique blend of uh, humour and the difficult Mm -hmm. family drama that uh, the writer uh, walks us through, takes us through uh, quite effectively. How does it stand out then uh, amongst other modern Korean literature? Okay, so like like Whale, is that was something that I really love about his uh, about Chon's books that have been translated so far, is that they stand out because they have this unique blend of humour and dark drama or dark family drama dark intergenerational uh, drama, which both both Whale and Modern Family have. A lot of the books that we review, uh, you know, they, they often explore quite uh, you know, dark themes of maybe government uh, abuse or workers being exploited or you know, intergenerational struggle or historical struggles. But Modern Family is taking a, sli- a slightly different route. It's l- looking at the lives of you know, ordinary people, if we can say that. So you've got gangsters and uh, you know, bitter old ladies and teenagers with bad attitudes and so on. Uh, and so it, in a way, it's not really the usual 
uh, it is serious literary fare that we sometimes review, uh, and that that is refreshing in a way. And also just that infusion of humour, very, very uh, sort of funny uh, novel. Uh, and sometimes that's a bit of a rarity in the books that we uh, review, that, you know, the Korean literature that gets translated into English is often not doing humour so much. Mm. Uh, and so that is a, a very enjoyable flavour in the in the novel. And at times it made me think of British TV shows like Only Fools and Horses or Shameless or the books of Roddy <laughs> Doyle, right? It has that sort of dysfunctional right. family, sort of working class kind of uh, humour in it. And that sort of humour uh, adds a very engaging and accessible layer to the story. And I think that makes it more relatable and enjoyable and definitely something that a wider audience would appreciate. I th- I think that's such an important point. So many Korean works that get translated are yeah. quite dour and serious. Yeah, I don't right, know if right, it's yeah. the Western publishers that prefer yeah. that kind of style, mm-hmm. but it, it's great to see a work that's less serious because there is so much more to Korean literature, of course. There's a lot yeah. of humour and poignancy in Korean works as well. And of course, at the same time, it's not just entertainment value. This book does explore deeper theme- themes as well, right? Yeah, right. Of course. Yeah. So uh, we've got it's not just a, a you know sort of comedic family drama. There's a lot of other things going on. Uh, it, so it's really about the importance of family bonds. So we have this protagonist, Inmo, who's very selfish. And it, throughout the course of the book, he sort of seeks redemption for his uh, you know selfish behavior and his sort of huge ego in the past uh and the story very cleverly conveys this message of you know putting family first even if that entails some kind of painful uh sacrifice and and several of the characters do have to do this they you know sort of have to make some kind of sacrifice for their family and so we have that thematic development that occurs over the second half of the the book so we see chon sort of balancing the humor with this more uh substantial storytelling And so while uh, the story might not conclude with a conventional happy ending, it does show that even in the face of adversity and dysfunction and uh, and various other social problems, that families can find a way to endure and and rediscover warmth and affection uh, that that binds them together. And I think Modern Family offers a wonderful uh, exploration of these themes, and I think it makes it a very uh, valuable addition to translated modern Korean literature. Right, sounds like a big thumbs up from you then, mm-hmm. Barry. So once again, that's Modern Family by Chan Myung-Wang, translated by Park Young-Lee. And that was our pick for Korea Book Club this week. Barry, thank you for that recommendation. And we look forward to the next one. Take care. OK, take care. Hello, this is Anna Yates-Lu, Assistant Professor from the Department of Korean Music at Seoul National University. You are now listening to Korea 24 on KBS World Radio. Next up, it's our closing segment, Morning Edition Preview, where we take a look at some interesting features or reports coming out in tomorrow's newspapers. And for that, we have joining us in the studio now, our staff editor, Richard Larkin. Richard, hello. It's good to see you. Hello. Okay, so I believe we only have one story today. Yes. What do you have for us? So it has been 20 years since UNESCO recognized pansori, the Korean traditional genre of music. And to celebrate the 20th anniversary of the genre being added to the organization's list of intangible cultural heritage, the very first World Pansori Festival was held this week in Seoul. That is what Hwang Dong-hee's article in the culture section of the Korea Herald is about. Right, okay. So you mentioned that this was the uh, inaugural festival. Yes. So what kind of 
activities took place. Even though it was the first event, the World Pensori Association, who was the organizer of the event, definitely wanted to put on a show. <laughs> the main event was a 20-hour Pansori relay. Wow. Okay. <laughs> so yeah, 60, 60 singers took the stage for 20 to 30 minutes each and performed one after another. What was really nice to read was that uh, the performers of all ages, uh, genders and nationalities sang. So novices were able to have the opportunity to go on the same stage as master singers. And the article mentions that the youngest singer was 10 years old and the oldest was 90 and five foreign nationals took part. Wow, that does sound pretty amazing, actually. Yeah. It sounds like it was a great way for uh, Pansori singers from different backgrounds to come together and right. share their love for the uh, traditional genre. Sure, yeah. There, were, there was also a workshop, um, but it was for international audience. So it was to try and get uh, more foreign Pansori singers. Right. Uh, it lasted two hours and Pansori singer Min Hae-sung and her student Anna Yates-Lu taught participants the essence, essentials of the genre. Our listeners might recognize the name Annie Yates Liu. She actually joined the show back in July, I think it was, to talk about her studies and more. Yeah, and one of the foreign participants, who the article mentions is Karina from Ukraine, said it was her first time learning how to sing Pansori, and she loved every minute of it. <laughs> her friend had actually recommended the festival to her. So yeah, those are the two main events that took place this week at the festival. The article includes more comments made by some of the foreign participants, as well as Min Sung. So yeah, it's, I think it's worth the read. Yes, definitely want to check out in tomorrow's Korea Herald. Yes. That's where we'll wrap it up for Morning Edition Preview. Thank you for those stories, Richard, and we'll see you next time. Thank you. And that's where we leave it for our show today. Thank you for staying with us. We'll be back same time tomorrow. So we hope you can join us again then. I've been your host, Kwon jang and thank you, as always, for listening. Goodbye. Thank mm-hmm. you.